1: In October of 2012, Katrina and Todd Smith marked their seventh wedding anniversary, a joyful occasion that within less than 24 hours would become a distant memory. Join me now as we explore a case of a young woman who was deceived into marrying a man she thought she knew, sacrificing nearly everything for love. You'll find out How white lies can obstruct some glaring truths. And how acceptance and patience can lead to the last place anyone expected. (laughs) Katrina Ashley Smith was born on July 16th. 1982, in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, a city referred to since 1952 as the Christmas card town because of how it embodies the charm of small-town America. Katrina had two siblings. Her brother Chad was 18 years older, while her sister Miranda was 8 years younger. Because Chad had moved out of the house by the time Miranda was born, Katrina naturally felt closer to her little sister. Miranda and Katrina enjoyed shopping trips and dining out together. Having each other to rely on also made it easier for them to adjust when their family relocated to Rockford, Illinois. According to Miranda, her big sister was always her rock and support system. Their older brother, Chad, enlisted in the U.S. Army after high school, which eventually brought him to the East Coast. It was there he got married and settled down, Fathering five children of his own, Chad and Katrina spoke regularly on the phone. His sister also made it a habit of visiting him at least once a year. Chad often looked to Katrina for sisterly wisdom. He said she gave good advice and was always an ear he could count on. Other people who knew Katrina felt the same, calling her warm-hearted and giving, with an especially soft spot for children. She even volunteered mentoring youth at her church. After graduating college, Katrina began working at an insurance company. That's where she met the man she would eventually marry, Todd Smith, a single father of three girls who just happened to be 15 years older than Katrina. But none of that concerned her. She fell in love with Todd and embraced his children as her own. The family soon moved into a house in the suburb of Rockford, only 15 minutes from Katrina's childhood home. Everything seemed to be moving along smoothly for the family. Katrina was thriving in a job she loved, and Todd was known around town as a successful insurance and investment broker. But the image they were portraying was superficial. In reality, Katrina's salary was the glue holding the family together, and the Smiths' sole source of income. Todd had been secretly involved in an elaborate business scam. Todd and his business partner, Travis Oliver, mailed flyers to retirees and senior citizens in three nearby counties advertising free retirement and financial planning seminars. During the seminars, seniors were solicited to invest in their company, Retirement Planning Services. If they did, they'd be rewarded with a guaranteed annual return of 12%. But investors weren't contributing funds towards their own future. Instead, their hard-earned money would be lining the pockets of Todd and his accomplice. Between July 2009 and March 2012, it was estimated the fraudulent company swindled investors out of between $550,000 to $1.5 million. In January 2012, a hearing was held for the white-collar crime, and both men were charged with seven counts of mail fraud and ten counts of wire fraud. In September 2016, Todd's accomplice pled guilty to one count of wire fraud and was sentenced to 51 months in prison. In addition, he was forced to repay over $983,000 in restitution to the victims. As for Todd, the sentencing for his crime would be delayed indefinitely because it would be overshadowed by something far more sinister. On the evening of October 22nd, 2012, Katrina was preparing for an important job interview scheduled for the following morning. The new position would place her higher up the ranks from her current role as human resources coordinator. Landing the job would also involve working for a new employer. At around 5.45 p.m., Katrina borrowed Todd's laptop and composed an email to the HR director at the company she was applying. Using a polished and professional tone, Katrina asked the director to confirm all the details of her interview and thanked him once again for the opportunity. Later that night, between 7 and 8 p.m., Katrina went out shopping for an outfit for her interview. The next morning, Todd texted his wife to wish her well. Good luck at your interview. You're going to be awesome. But as it got later in the day, Todd received no response. At around noon, he tried calling her work line. When the call went unanswered, he left a voicemail inquiring about Katrina's appointment and asked her to call him back when she could. On October 23rd, 2012, the day of Katrina's interview, Todd called 911 to report Katrina missing. He told the dispatcher his wife had been house-sitting for a friend that was out of town and he wasn't able to reach her on her phone. Todd later told police, after trying to contact Katrina several times, he drove over to the condo she was watching, but there was no sign of Katrina. The Winnebago County Sheriff's Department quickly decided to lead an investigation. The date of Katrina's disappearance was noted as Monday, October 22, 2012, and a community-wide search was quickly underway. Lead investigator on the case, Detective Vince Lindbergh, was soon joined by Katrina's family, friends, friends co-workers and neighbors in addition to Todd, all eager to track down any sign of Katrina. Locals who took a strong interest in the case even volunteered to join in the search. A Facebook account under the name Find Katrina Smith was set up in an effort to get Katrina's face and story out to the press, while a benefit held at her church raised more than $5,500 for Katrina's family. The story of Katrina's disappearance began to dominate local news headlines, both in print and on screen. And Todd was only too eager to make appearances, being interviewed daily on local news stations.
0: It's overwhelming the outreach, the love, and the support of everyone. And I'm deeply grateful. And I know Katrina would appreciate it.
1: In every interview, Todd was seen sobbing and begging for his wife's safe return. In total, Todd made 17 on-screen appearances. On October 23rd, at 8 p.m., a blue Chevrolet Cruze was reported to 911 as being parked illegally at an intersection of Ventura Boulevard and Obispo Road. The caller confirmed the car had sat unoccupied the entire day. According to Detective John Berg, the car looked as though it had been left in a hurry halfway down into a ditch. When police ran the license plate, they discovered it was registered to Katrina Smith. As police began forensic testing, they hoped for a break in the case. In the meantime, while they waited for results, the tireless search continued. Detective Lindbergh would later testify that Todd called him a few times after his wife's disappearance, accusing another detective of telling Katrina's family blood had been found in her car, which seemed bizarre to Detective Lindbergh. The car hadn't even been processed yet. That's when Todd began to backpedal, claiming he must have read it on a blog or heard it through the grapevine. Because Katrina's car had been located less than half a mile from Schoonmacher Park, search parties redirected their focus to the park's surrounding neighborhoods, eager for more clues.
0: We have a tremendous number of volunteers that have assisted us, have conducted a widespread land search of this area. They've been wonderful, have covered this very thoroughly, Uh, have helped us a great deal. But this is something that we need to continue on from this point forward within the water as well.
1: On October 24th, several of Katrina's personal belongings were found, 500 feet from where her car was located. Her purse was discovered, thrown haphazardly into the woods. That same day, her cell phone was also found, a few blocks from her car and purse. It had been tossed into a bush. On October 25th, her wallet was discovered in Rockford, nearly 20 minutes away from the other items. A good Samaritan found it in the middle of the road and turned it over to a neighboring business. One of their employees then handed it over to the Rockford police. That same day, searchers also found crumpled paper towels not far from Katrina's car, stained with what appeared to be blood. The paper towels were sent in for processing along with Katrina's other personal items. With Katrina's cell phone now in custody, Detectives were able to look into the last people she communicated with, and there was one person that piqued their interest. His name was Guy Gabriel, a colleague of Katrina's, and it was clear through their communication they'd been having an affair. The text messages revealed Guy had been encouraging Katrina to leave her husband. After doing a background check, they also discovered he had a history of domestic violence. Guy quickly became a person of interest in the case. After bringing him in for questioning, Guy admitted to the affair, but insisted he had nothing to do with Katrina's disappearance. He also had an alibi. Another person who became of interest was a boy who lived in the neighborhood. Earlier that year, Katrina had confided in friends that a young man from her church had become infatuated with her and had been watching her through her windows. However, the peeping had stopped months before her disappearance when the teenager moved away for college. Another disturbing incident was also brought to the detective's attention. Just two weeks before Katrina went missing, someone wearing a mask driving a VW Jetta had raced through the parking lot of her work. As co-workers stood outside on their lunch break, the driver tossed a handful of flyers through the sunroof. On the flyers was a derogatory statement about the relationship between Katrina and Guy. Katrina later told her beautician she felt like her life was in danger. She even went to a phone store and asked if it was possible for someone to be tracking her through her phone. She had a feeling someone was following her. On October 30th, hundreds of people gathered together in Shoemaker Park to hold a vigil for Katrina. As they huddled together, tears began to stream down Todd's face as he thanked everyone who came out. By that point in the investigation, a week had gone by since Katrina had last been seen, and the odds of finding her alive were beginning to dwindle. Yet the search continued on, With Rockford police circling the Rock River in a helicopter. Rock River is expansive, spanning roughly 300 miles, bordered by over 30 cities in Wisconsin and Illinois. But even a bird's eye view didn't offer much help in what it started to feel like a futile search effort. On November 9th, 2012, 18 days after Todd had reported his wife missing, A grisly discovery broke the case. An off-duty firefighter had been fishing in Rock River near Byron, Illinois, when he spotted a large object bobbing near the riverbank, and whatever it was seemed to have been caught up on a log. After taking a closer look, he realized it was a woman's body. The firefighter notified authorities right away, and it wasn't long before the serene setting was completely transformed. It had become an active crime scene. Detectives from the Winnebago County Sheriff's Department quickly arrived on the scene. They watched in horror while the fire department's water rescue team carefully pulled the body out of the river. There were visible signs of decomposition, hinting the body may have been submerged for an extended period of time. The unidentified individual was partially clothed, and only a few faded pieces of fabric remained under layers of mud. It was impossible to ID the body in the condition it was found, so the coroner's office conducted an autopsy. Imprints taken from the victim's teeth were then compared with Katrina's dental records, Less than 24 hours later, the devastating results were made public. The woman in the river was Katrina Smith. The frantic search spanning nearly three weeks came to a grinding halt. The investigation into the cause of Katrina's mysterious disappearance had reached its harrowing conclusion. But who could possibly want to harm a woman loved by so many? It was the one question weighing on everyone's minds. The extent of the violence committed against Katrina wouldn't fully come to light until the trial, but the findings during the autopsy had made one thing abundantly clear the 30 year old wife and stepmother's life had tragically ended by foul play. This was apparent by the bruising found on her arms, legs, and one side of her body, in addition to seven deep cuts on her skull, her cause of death being cited as blunt force trauma. For the first time in the investigation, Katrina was publicly declared a homicide victim, and her family was absolutely devastated. Knowing the details surrounding her final moments is the part Katrina's mother has said hurt the most. Knowing how her child suffered was an excruciating realization. Detectives concluded it was unlikely a stranger was the culprit of such an intimate murder. It seemed only logical to launch the investigation by questioning the last person to see her alive, her husband. The outcome of any interrogations was kept closely guarded until enough evidence was gathered to execute an arrest. Once Katrina's car was processed, there were several findings. One item was a card that contained a note from Todd, which read, I am scared to death that you are going to start talking to someone who will take advantage of the situation. He went on to say, he would do anything to win back Katrina's lost affections. The content of the card completely negated Todd's initial claims to police. There had been no marital conflicts. Though the interior of the car seemed clean to the naked eye, crime scene investigator Tim Spear did a thorough examination that revealed otherwise. He identified traces of blood not only on the driver's seat, but the stick shift and steering wheel. Larger amounts of blood were also discovered in the trunk of the car, along with a long piece of hair ensnared in one of the trunk's hinges. Speer told investigators it was obvious someone had attempted to wipe the car clean before planting it by the side of the road. Forensic experts also checked the car's undercarriage, where they found a wire indicating something had once been attached. With the investigation already underway, detectives obtained a search warrant to look through Todd and Katrina's home. There, they seized several belongings, including a pair of muddy hiking boots, a baseball bat, and Todd's laptop. When the laptop was closely examined, Detective Juanez found proof of Todd's raging jealousy. Not only did they find the flyer, that had been thrown out of the car at Katrina's work. They found his obsessive behavior had also involved stalking his wife. One of the folders on the defendant's computer was titled Super Track Stick. According to the logs in his folder, Todd had been tracking his wife's movements for three years. Using Super Track Stick, Todd had monitored his wife's activity on a regular basis. The exact model he was using is known as a historical tracker. The coordinates can be uploaded to Google Maps to pinpoint its location. In a drawer in Todd's desk, the clip that held the tracking device was found. Tracking software had also been removed from Todd's laptop three days prior to Katrina's disappearance. Detectives were also able to confirm Todd had been the disguised driver who had thrown the flyers at Katrina's work. That same day, he had test-driven a black VW Jetta that matched the same description as the one that had raced through the parking lot. It turned out that in order for Todd to test-drive the car, the dealership required for him to provide his ID. The evidence against Todd Smith was mounting. The investigation also revealed another startling revelation. Katrina Smith hadn't even known her husband's real name. Todd Rapprager had legally changed his name to Todd C. Smith when he was a teenager in an effort to cover up arson charges. In 1985, when Todd was 17, he set his childhood home ablaze with his family inside. Luckily, everyone managed to escape unharmed. Because he was a juvenile, Todd was sentenced to 30 months probation in order to get a drug evaluation. This finding made it clear Todd was capable of being incredibly deceptive. On November 24, 2012, at approximately 2:45 p.m., Todd Smith was taken into police custody.
0: I um, called the press conference so the Winnebago County State's Attorney's Office can announce that Todd C. Smith, age 45, has been arrested and charged with four counts of first-degree murder and one count of concealment of a homicide regarding the death of Katrina Smith, age 30. Uh, Todd Smith uh, was arrested today at approximately 2.45 p.m. Uh, the warrant uh, and bond has been set at $4 million.
1: On February 1, 2013, pretrial hearings began, where many incriminating details about Todd emerged, evidence presented, That would later be used at trial at one hearing detective juanez testified todd had told him his marriage was happy and there were no problems but subsequent testimony given by katrina's friends family and co-workers all corroborated that she wanted to divorce her controlling husband enough to substantiate a potential motive the detective also noted when todd gave an account Of Katrina's activities the last night he saw her, he told two different stories. He told investigators divorce had never been on the table and their marriage was stable. According to Todd, Katrina left the house that night to briefly check on a friend's condo while they were off traveling, but she never returned home. Katrina's best friend, Ashley, said that was a total lie. Katrina had actually been living in a condo and had left Todd about two and a half weeks before she vanished. She had even mentioned meeting with a divorce attorney. The night of her disappearance, she had demanded a divorce. Katrina's former boss also confirmed her efforts to leave her husband. Katrina had grown anxious over Todd's controlling behavior and worried he was tracking her phone. She also referenced a disturbing incident that happened in the parking lot outside work on October 8, 2012, the day after Katrina moved out of the home, she and Todd shared someone had distributed hundreds of flyers in the parking lot, accusing Katrina of having an affair with a co-worker, Guy Gabriel. While she was having an affair, phrases used in the flyer were traced back to Todd's laptop by prosecutors. Clear evidence. Her estranged husband had spun out into a jealous rage in the weeks leading up to Katrina's death. Text messages between Katrina and her stepfather, Bruce Edland, also confirmed an escalating fear for her safety. In texts presented during the hearing, Katrina had asked her stepdad how to obtain an Illinois firearms owner's ID card and showed an interest in going to a shooting range. Bruce also mentioned knowledge of a $330,000 life insurance policy on Katrina, with Todd as the sole beneficiary. Cashing in would have likely bailed him out of all his financial woes. Even though conversations and text messages would be classified as hearsay, Judge John Truitt decided the testimonies would be admissible in Todd's upcoming trial. Todd's attorney filed a motion for a change of venue. They argued their client wouldn't receive a fair trial because of all the pre-trial publicity. However, their motion was denied, along with the other requests to reduce bail and suppress certain evidence. By the completion of the hearings, additional charges were tacked on. The case of the state of Illinois versus Todd C. Smith included seven counts of first-degree murder. Aggravated domestic battery, aggravated battery with a deadly weapon, aggravated unlawful restraint, and one count of concealing a homicide. Being found guilty by a jury of even just one count of first-degree murder could mean a life sentence for Todd. In January of 2016, Judge Truett retired, causing the long-delayed trial to be held a year later with the new judge presiding. Part of the delay also rested in jury selection. It proved extremely difficult to identify unbiased jurors due to all the publicity that surrounded the case. In a single day, 70 potential jury candidates were interviewed. Over a dozen were dismissed because of prior knowledge of the case. This process continued on for three days until 12 jurors plus alternates were finally selected. On January 11, 2017, in Rockford, Illinois, the high-profile murder trial officially began. Opening statements from prosecution cited strong evidence of Todd's guilt with a spotlight on a potential murder weapon. Defense attorneys attempted to cast Todd in the role of a worry-stricken and loving husband, all the while laying the blame on sloppy police work. The defense team harped on the notion that police had identified no other persons of interest during their investigation. Todd had been their sole focus. Detective Lindbergh proceeded to list off several other persons of interest, insisting they weren't previously named so as not to jeopardize what was then an ongoing investigation. Prosecutors relied heavily on testimonies, all of which pointed to Todd's guilt. Todd's best friend, Drew Anderson, testified being asked to accompany Todd and his three daughters to their home. They wanted to grab some of their belongings while a search warrant was being executed there. Todd specifically asked him to see if there was an aluminum baseball bat in the garage. He was told the Louisville Slugger should be resting against a wall behind Todd's Jeep Grand Cherokee. When Anderson reported the bat wasn't there, he described Todd's reaction as distraught. It turned out it had already been taken by police during their initial search. Blood found on the bat was tested by Blake Apper, a DNA and biological evidence analysis at the Illinois State Crime Lab. He confirmed the suspected murder weapon was covered in Katrina's DNA. Dr. Mark Peters, the forensic pathologist who performed the autopsy, testified. There was no doubt in his mind Katrina's injuries were caused by a cylindrical object like a bat. Photos from the autopsy were viewed by the court, jurors, and Katrina's family for the first time since her death. The visuals were shocking. The extensive bruising scattered on Katrina's body and swelling on her face made her nearly unrecognizable. The images presented served as a sobering reminder of just how much she had suffered. Dr. Peters went on to say it was impossible to know if the blows to her head had killed her before she was placed in the river, or if she'd been rendered unconscious and died later of asphyxiation. Either way, the attack against Katrina was relentlessly brutal and done in cold blood. The defense then called Guy Gabriel to the stand. The co-worker Katrina had been secretly dating was their best hope of funneling suspicion away from their client. Gabriel testified their relationship was strictly platonic until the day before the accusatory flyers were distributed. They had gone for a walk together on October 8th. Katrina asked him for advice. She wanted to hire a divorce attorney, and Guy was pursuing a divorce himself. The next day, she called him after the flyer incident Sounding upset and mortified, she struggled to understand how Todd knew about their affair. Gabriel read text messages exchanged between him and Katrina on the night she disappeared. Through text, Gabriel had encouraged Katrina to finally confront Todd about a divorce. Gabriel insisted he was only offering support, yet the defense twisted the messages to paint him as a pushy homewrecker. The defense attorney also dug into Gabriel's past. At the time of the trial, there were pending domestic abuse charges alleged by his wife in December of 2016. A DeKalb County officer, who responded to a domestic dispute, told the court Gabriel's wife had a head injury and scratches on her throat and chest. The nurse who treated her injuries testified Gabriel had pushed his wife down slammed her head against the floor, and then choked her. The defense used this charge as proof of Gabriel's propensity for violent behavior. But Gabriel's alibi was solid. On the night Katrina was murdered, he was working an overnight shift at their shared workplace, backed up by his boss and video surveillance on site. Detective Juanez elaborated. On evidence pulled from the tracking device under Katrina's car, hundreds of pings had tracked Todd's every move after the murder. Todd's stalking would ultimately be his undoing. On the night of Katrina's disappearance, GPS indicated the device had been taken off Katrina's car and then carried across a sidewalk and through fields on the way to the Smith's residence. While the defense argued the device was never found, footage recovered from a neighbor's home security camera proved otherwise. A small statured man could be seen a distance away from the camera, though the image was too blurry to make out his face. Detective Juanez testified he compared the coordinates from the tracking software with the movements seen on the video, and they were a frame-for-frame match. Ultimately, all evidence indicated, Todd flew off the rails when Katrina expressed her wishes to several ties. In the end, she had been murdered in retaliation by a manipulative husband who stood to lose everything. On January 25th, 2017, after nearly three weeks in court, the trial reached its conclusion. In closing arguments the prosecutor stressed how fearful Katrina had grown of her husband. She restated Todd's disturbing behavior as well as the brutality of the crime. The defense attorney countered by saying there was still too many unanswered questions and cautioned the jury against an act of confirmation bias by convicting Todd Smith of his wife's murder. It took jurors five hours to to sift through all 150 pieces of evidence and return with a verdict, Todd Smith was found guilty of first-degree murder. The jury also determined the crime to be brutal and heinous, which led to an extended sentence of 59 years in prison, which could amount to a life sentence as Todd was 50 years old at the time of his conviction. When the verdict was read, Todd slumped in his chair and seemed in disbelief. He maintained his innocence while quoting Bible verses and added, I'm sorry for failing in my role as a husband and protector. The judge called the crime unfathomable and expressed how Todd's participation in the search for the woman he killed was a slap in the face to her loved ones and community. In a tearful statement, Katrina's mother told her son-in-law she defended him against accusations made by family who felt from the beginning he was responsible. She said, it all hurt so much, Todd, and all you had to do was walk away and let Katrina live the life she deserved. But out of greed and jealousy and rage, you chose to take her precious life. A guilty verdict gave Katrina's friends and family a sense of closure they'd been looking for for over four years. It had been a long emotional road, and they were finally able to start the healing process. We want to just be able to move forward and just always remember Katrina and just celebrate the person she was, said Katrina's sister. Katrina was a beautiful person inside and out. And she really made the world a better place just by being in it. When Todd murdered Katrina, he robbed the world of so much. He stole a strong mother figure from his daughters. He took away yearly visits from her nieces and nephews, holidays with their siblings and parents, and new memories for the future. He also stripped a community From a kind and loving role model, countless children and peers admired, although Katrina was prematurely taken from this world, her legacy carries on by the impact she made in the lives of those who were fortunate to know her. Now I would like to introduce to you a new fictional podcast series from our pals at Crawl Space Media. The show's called Pi Rational Stories. That's pi like the number, not the dessert. And they just finished up season two titled The Bathtub. You can also check out season one titled Lotus. And here's Neil to introduce to you The Bathtub. Thanks so much, Tyler. I'm Neil
0: Heligers, and I narrated season two of Crawlspace Media's fictional series Pi Rational Stories, titled The Bathtub. Pi Rational Stories are told anthology style from a dark corner of the universe. In the bathtub, we follow Richard, who is in a small town for a job. He rents a rundown apartment in an old insane asylum. He meets his neighbors, a brother and sister, who tell him they are the only two tenants, but Richard hears another person in the room above every night. He is sure he is not alone, and that his new roommate enters from under the bathtub. Listen to all the stories and subscribe to Pirational Stories on Apple, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are available. That's pi underscore R-A-T-I-O-N-A-L stories. And thank you.
1: The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter using the handle at Madness And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by the Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerror records.com.au slash GE.
0: I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run